Would you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 19? Matthew chapter 19, we're going to start at verse 13. Uh, If you're visiting today, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew this year, and we're continuing our study this morning. We're going to talk about little children and a rich young man or a rich young ruler. Matthew 19, I'd like to read for us verses 13 through the end of the chapter. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. And Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. And Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. And then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes today to the truth of your word. It is challenging, it's convicting, it's encouraging. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do your work and speak to us the words that we need to hear in your name. Amen. The last few weeks, we have been talking about kingdom values. That's what chapters 18 and 19 in Matthew deal with. A kingdom values. They are a reminder of the things that are important to God and so should be important to us as well. And we've seen that God values things like humility. It is the meek who will inherit the earth. It is those who have childlike trust that will enter the kingdom of heaven. He values community, working together as a body of believers to glorify God. He values mercy and forgiveness, and we are to forgive others just as God has forgiven us. Last Sunday, Pastor Jim spoke, and he gave an excellent message that dealt with Jesus' view of marriage and what it means to be single. 
And if you weren't here, I would encourage you to get the CD or listen to that online. It was a very good message. Uh, for today's culture in particular, when some question the value of marriage or when we see it being delayed or postponed, it was a very good statement on why marriage is important for us and for our culture, our nation as a whole. And today we're going to look at briefly this first passage that talks about how God also values children. Now it makes sense that after he's talked about marriage and what it means to be single, that he would also value children. And uh, we see in this passage that people were bringing their children to Jesus, wanting Jesus to place his hands on them and bless them. You've heard me read that passage many times as we read that every time. We have a parent-child dedication at the front of the church. But in this occasion, the disciples were kind of acting like the secret service around the president. You know, they were protecting him, you know, he, uh, he's too busy, or he can't see you, or no touch, or keep your distance, and all of that. And when Jesus saw it, he spoke these words that are so familiar. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Once again, Jesus holds up children as an example of the kind of childlike trust that we need to enter the kingdom of heaven. They are an example for us. And we see in these words how Jesus loves little children, and so should we. So should we. And I think about that in two regards. As parents, if you have been, you know, blessed with children in your family, as parents, you know, what a blessing those kids are. They are entrusted to you for a season that you might help them to come to know Christ and grow in their relationship with Him and send them out into the world. And uh, it is a great privilege to be able to do that. Discipleship begins in the home. And our role as parents is that we are the primary teachers of our children. We were actually just talking about it this week in our staff meeting where we were talking about our role as uh, believers in the church or as teachers and leaders in Sunday school or youth ministry or all those different areas. I mean, our role is really secondary to what you do as parents. Uh, we may have your kids for an hour or two or three during the week if they come and participate in different activities here. But that's really small compared to the amount of time and influence that you have upon them as children. And our role is to assist you in encouraging them in their faith and building them up and teaching the scriptures. But your role is really primary. And at our church, in particular in our children's ministry and youth ministry, we have all kinds of tools and encouragement that can help you to do that. There are things available both online at our website as well as you can talk to any of our staff. Because sometimes, you know, you may have grown up in a home where... Um, your parents were not believers. You've come to know Christ, and now you're wondering, how do I parent my children as a Christian? What does that mean? What does that look like for me to disciple my children? Or how do I do that? And we're here to help you and encourage you in that area. But if you're involved in our church in one of those ministries to children or students, I mean, you are doing a great work. You are involved in helping to shape the next generation and to raise up those future leaders for the church. 
Uh, it is through you that many times these kids see an example of what it means to know Christ and through your teaching and leading, they may make that commitment and pray to receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And we realize that at our church here, in our children's ministry, especially ministries like Vacation Bible School, but also our youth ministry, as many as 30 to 40% of the kids who come are not from our church. And many of those come from unchurched families where they're not going anywhere. And the only place that they are hearing or learning about Jesus is through you and your work in that ministry. So I encourage you with Vacation Bible School coming up in a week to be praying for those children who will come and ask that God would open their hearts to the gospel. And for those that are involved in that, love them, love them, encourage them, and bless them when they are here. But how does this passage fit with what follows? The story of the rich young man that Matthew tells. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning in this passage. Well, the humility of the little children stands in contrast to this rich young man who thought that he could have it all, everything the world offered, and heaven too. And this is where we're going to look at this passage to see what Jesus has to say to us. In 1982, Helen Gurley Brown wrote a book called Having It All. And she wasn't the first to coin that phrase, you can have it all, but many people since that time have kind of picked up on her idea that you can, you know, have everything that this world offers, you know, you can live life to the fullest, almost as though you don't need to make choices about that. You can do whatever you want to do. Have the career, the wealth, the leisure, everything that the world has to offer, and you will live happily ever after. But is that true? Aren't there really choices that all of us need to make every single day that affect who we are and what we'll become and where we will spend eternity? There was a man in the Bible who kind of bought into that myth as well that you can have it all. And he came to Jesus with a question. All three of the synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three Gospels, all describe him as rich. Matthew tells us that he was young, and Luke tells us that he was a ruler. We believe by ruler he meant a synagogue official. So here's this young man who from a human perspective looked like he had it all. I mean, everything was going great for him. He is successful. He was a, a rich man. He had money. And he uh, was also a ruler, so he had influence or power over others. And he was a moral man. He was a man who strove to keep the commandments as best as he could. In fact, he was the kind of man you'd probably like to have for a neighbor or a friend. He was young, and it doesn't say this, but he may have been good-looking too, you know, like he had everything that the world could offer. But something was still missing in his life. And it's interesting that he knew that that was spiritual. Something was missing. He knew it was spiritual. And so he came to Jesus with a question. And he asked Jesus, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, have you ever noticed that the questions that we ask say something about us? 
Even the way that he framed that question said something about him. He really believed that there was something that he could do to earn eternal life. If he just kind of lived his life, you know, well, or his good deeds outweighed his bad deeds, or if he could somehow merit God's favor, he would gain eternal life. But he just didn't quite feel like he had maybe done enough yet. How could he ensure that? And so he's on this track where he is thinking about those things. But what his question reveals is that he had a wrong understanding of himself, of God, and of how to get to heaven. Unfortunately, he is like many people in our world today. So what does this passage have to say to us? Well, one of the observations I made is that there is a longing in every human heart to know God. There is a longing in every human heart to know God. Because it is the way that God has made us. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, the Scripture says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God has placed this longing within us for eternity, this longing, this sense, there's got to be more than just what we experience in this life. And that is there. And so people search for things. The New International Version in the Study Bible has a footnote that I think is really interesting, well said. It said that God's beautiful but tantalizing world is too big for us, yet its satisfactions are too small. And since we were made for eternity, the things of time cannot fully and permanently satisfy. Now think about that. God's given us this really big and beautiful world. And there's so much that we would like to see and do, but we can't. We're limited by time and money and, uh, you know, maybe opportunities that we have. You have to make choices. A few years ago, there was a movie called The Bucket List, you know, and, and since that time, people have thought, well, what would be on my bucket list and what are all those things I want to do before I die? And, and it's this great, big, beautiful world that we would love to explore and see, but we can't. We can't do everything that we want to do. And even when we do experience some of those great pleasures, I mean, we've had the opportunity to travel and go to different parts of the world, and yet when I look back, you know, those things are like just this, this fading memory. I mean, there were things that were wonderful, but you can't keep that moment with you forever. And, and then when you look at our world too and you think about all of the things that are struggles and trials, you know, people you love that are going through illness, disappointments that you've had to deal with, disabilities or loss of job or financial insecurity, and you look at all of that and you go, there's something wrong with this world. This doesn't seem the way that it should be. And a big part of that is because God has made us for eternity. And the things of this life cannot fully and permanently satisfy. They were not intended to. They were meant to point us to something greater. So people look, and they try to fill the void in their life with things like fame or fortune or pleasures or kind of a pseudo-spirituality. I mean, we see that a lot. Uh, you know, there are... Uh, celebrities like Oprah, who kind of has a, an eclectic approach to spirituality, picking and choosing from many different backgrounds as though they're all the same. 
Or you have celebrities like Richard Gere who's gotten involved in Buddhism or Tom Cruise in Scientology. and They're all trying to fill this void that money and success can't satisfy. Six weeks before he died, Elvis Presley was asked by a reporter, Elvis, when you started playing music, you said you wanted three things in life. You wanted to be rich, you wanted to be famous, and you wanted to be happy. Elvis, are you happy? And Elvis replied, no, I am as lonely as hell. Rich, famous, but lonely and unhappy. There is a void that could not be filled in his life. Blaise Pascal, the philosopher, said it like this. He said, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. And so people are trying to satisfy this hunger, this need in their life with all kinds of stuff, and they're still feeling empty. Why? Because there's only one thing that can fill that void in our life. It is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Is there an emptiness in your heart? Are you still searching for meaning and purpose in life? Well, the Bible tells us that the only way to find meaning and purpose in life is through Jesus Christ, through a relationship with Him. And we see that in the story here that's told about this rich young man. Jesus replied to him and He said, Why do you ask Me about what is good? There is only one who is good, meaning God. And if you want to enter into life, well then obey the commandments. And what was Jesus doing here? In a loving way, Jesus was challenging his understanding of God. There's only one who is good. There's only one who is truly holy, God himself. He is absolutely holy. In fact, it's arrogant on our part to think that we could be holy on our own initiative simply by just keeping the commandments. But Jesus is kind of gently and lovingly correcting him and challenging him. And he says, why do you come to me? I think behind that, Jesus is asking the question, do you know who I am? He sees Jesus as a good teacher. That's the way he addressed him, teacher. But he doesn't see him as God. And he doesn't see him as Savior. Not yet. And Jesus confronted him then with the law's demands. And he said, keep the commandments. And the the man replies and he says, well, which ones? You know, and so Jesus goes on and he quotes five of the ten commandments. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. And then he adds, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, isn't it interesting that this young man comes right back and he goes, all these I have kept. (laughs) You know, I've done all that. I mean, what more is there? I've done all of those things. There's There's a brashness. There's a little bit of an arrogance in that. He must not have heard Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, you know, that if you have anger in your heart, it's the same as murder. Or if you have lust in your heart, it's like committing adultery. Jesus gets at the heart. It's not just externally doing a few things. And Jesus said, if you've broken one of the commandments, you're guilty of all. And so here is this man who feels self-righteous, who feels like he's done everything God has asked of him, 
And so what more is there to do? He really doesn't see his sin yet, does he? And so Jesus puts his finger on the one obstacle that was holding him back more than anything else, and it was his wealth. His wealth. And when confronted with this command to go and sell everything you possess and give it to the poor and then come and follow me, this man would not do it. The rich young ruler went away sad because he was unwilling to part with it. His God was his money. Now I want to make a comment about this command that was given here by Jesus to this young man. It was specific for him. The disciples never took Jesus' command as a requirement for all of us. The command to sell everything you have wasn't mandated for every Christian. Jesus was putting his finger on what it was that was holding him back from following Christ. There have been believers who were wealthy. You can go back to the Old Testament time and look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Job and David. Or in the New Testament, you can see believers who were well off like Lydia or Joseph of Arimathea. The command was not taken to be universal for everyone, but there are times when even today God has called people to give up what they have. You see, and when Jesus says here, keep the commandments, Jesus isn't saying that we can earn our way into heaven either. He's not saying that, that by keeping the commands we can somehow make our way into heaven. The point of this parable is if we are to enter into heaven, we must come to Jesus with an undivided heart. An undivided heart. In Luke 16:13, Jesus said, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot have it all. There are choices that we need to make in our life. Will we follow God? Will we serve Him? Will we hold nothing back from Him? It is a call to absolute surrender. And whatever it is that's keeping us from following Christ, if it's our plans, if it's our pleasures, if it's our pride, if it is our fears, we need to lay those at the altar before God. It is a call to absolute surrender. And in that way, the way of discipleship is the same for everyone. We must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. It's the same for all. And yet there are many who are unwilling to do that and they are trading eternity for the things of this world that will not last. Let me give you an illustration of that. There was a story about a child who one day was visiting a museum with his parents. And this child kind of wandered off and then he began to howl and scream as though something very terrible had happened. Well, what had happened was that this child had stuck his hand into a very expensive Chinese vase and he couldn't get his hand back out. And the people who were there helping on this, you know, they're trying to coax him into relaxing his hand and pulling his hand out and they tried lubricants and all kinds of things to be able to get it out and finally it became apparent that it wasn't going to happen. And there was nothing left to do but to break this expensive vase. 
And when the pile of shards was there, it became apparent what was holding the child back, that the child had spied a penny in the bottom of this vase, and he had tightly gripped his fist about it. And he was unwilling to let go of that penny. An expensive gift was destroyed for the sake of something that was relatively worthless in comparison. And there are people who are so tightly holding on to the things of this world that they will miss eternity and what is to come. Jesus said how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He could have said how hard it is for a self-sufficient man or woman, how hard it is for a proud man or a gifted man or an athletic man. I mean, there are many different things that we can put our confidence and our trust in other than God, but all of those will come up empty. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The camel was the largest land animal in Palestine. The needle's eye was the smallest opening. And Jesus was intending it to be an example of something that's impossible. It is impossible for anyone to be saved apart from God. But the disciples were astonished by this statement of Jesus. And why were they astonished? Because they had been led to believe that riches were a sign of God's favor. That if somebody was rich, then God has obviously blessed them. They must be doing something right in their life. And if a rich man can't be saved, then who can be saved? And Jesus is saying it's only by God's grace that we are saved. It's only by placing our trust in Him. And then thirdly, what He says is that when we come to Christ, there is great reward. There is indeed great reward. Peter asks the question, what will there be for us? They had left everything to follow Jesus. Their work, their profession, their families behind, and they had come to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, that the renewal of all things in that future glorious day that we sang about when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There is a future day coming when those disciples would sit upon the thrones. And to judge means to rule or to govern. They will have positions of leadership in that future kingdom. But then he goes on to speak to all of us who are disciples of Jesus. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. A hundred times as much. Far more than any sacrifice we will make. God will be no one's debtor. What we gain far exceeds any sacrifice that we will ever make. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. God has given us a taste of what is to come, but it is far more than what we could even imagine. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. It's a reminder to stay humble and don't focus on the reward, but focus on Jesus. Follow Him. 
C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. So what will you choose? Can we really have it all? No, not as the world pictures it and describes it. We have to make choices all along the way. And for me, a message like this is an opportunity to once again take a look at my life and align my life with the compass and true north and make sure that I'm following Him. And if there's anything in our life that's holding us back from that, from walking with Jesus, or anything that we've been unwilling to surrender, it's a reminder of how important it is. The rich young ruler had a choice to make, and he chose his money rather than following God. The issue is who or what comes first in our life. And the call to follow Jesus is a call to surrender everything to Him. Let's pray. Father, when we think about that in our life, I do pray that there would be nothing that would stand in the way of our relationship with You. That we would follow You with all our heart. That we would love You, as You have said, with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. That we would desire to please You and make that our goal. And so, Father, would You do a work today. Search our heart. See if there's any hurtful way in us. And then lead us in the way everlasting. We pray in your name. Amen.